Good morning, everyone. Today's Bible reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test, but we pray to God that you do nothing wrong, not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. For we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. This is why I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you. In keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Hey, congratulations. You have made it to the end of our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you have been with us all through the last five something months, you would have spent 19 weeks working verse by verse through this book, which means now you are an expert, a scholar in the field. Congratulations. Well done, you. We will be sending you your certificate of completion soon. Actually, we don't have any certificates to give out, but but well done you anyway. You've done a great job and we are finally now into the last chapter, into the last sermon in this series. You might have remembered way back, like five months ago, we kicked off this series actually with me preaching from my den at home. I was self-isolating after having a a negative COVID test and during that sermon we did a big introduction to the book and to the context in Corinth. You might remember that I, I talked about the fact that Corinth was this this hustling bustling city of trade. It was a melting pot for cultures and uh, in the city you had um, freed slaves who had emigrated there. You had ex-Roman soldiers who had set up shop there. You had a big Jewish community um, 
you had all of these different cultures, um, this sort of confluence of cultures in Corinth, and you had a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity. It was a city known for sports and entertainment. It was known for sex and the sex industry that was there. It was also known for religious pluralism. So all these different kinds of religious ideas would find their way into the city. And you had this, yeah, this real patchwork, this real cosmopolitan uh, context that Paul entered into and planted a church within. And so he, he planted the church and stuck around for a little while, then moved on to plant other churches. And the church was a great success. Like in the midst of this very cosmopolitan, very pluralistic society, you had the church doing really well. They were excelling in knowledge of the gospel. They were excelling in gifts and, and exercising those gifts. And, um, and so you have this, this church which is vibrant and growing and healthy, and then into that context comes these super apostles who, who Paul has been battling against throughout uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, and the super apostles were doing a lot of damage to that young church. And they were doing this by, as Paul says, by preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. They were using the, the language of Christianity and of the apostolic gospel, but they were uh, importing into it so many other um, worldviews and ideologies that it was no longer the gospel that Paul preached. It was a, another gospel. It was no longer the Jesus that he preached. It was a different Jesus. It was no longer empowered by the same spirit, but it was, as he said, uh, given um, give, given uh, animated by Satan himself, not the Holy Spirit, but by the spirit of Satan. And these, these super apostles were in effect servants of Satan looking to undermine the gospel ministry of Paul in Corinth. And so the Corinthians are slipping. As Paul writes this letter, and in, in, in the period leading up to him writing the letter, they were slipping. They were slipping back into the cultural context they'd come out of. Right, starting to readopt some of the the ethics of Corinth, particularly when it came to sex, um, and 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 then also they were slipping in terms of their gospel fidelity, moving away from the gospel that Paul preached towards the these the, the gospel of these impressive teachers, and we've seen that the way that they undermined Paul was by kind of. Uh, disparaging him publicly in front of the people in Corinth. They said that, you know, he was a he was a not a very good preacher, very dull preacher, very dry, not not a not not a rhetorician like they were, not trained in Greek um, rhetoric. And they they also said you know, he suffers too much. You know, we, you know about the the kind of life he's living as an as a, as a as a so-called apostle, as a missionary. He's suffering all the time. He's getting beaten and and whipped and shipwrecked, and he's going hungry and and he's poor, right? He doesn't have much money. That can, th- th- these are not marks of an apostle. These are the marks of a, an imposter. And so they were undermining him by disparaging him in his giftedness and in the way that he was suffering and even in his personal appearance they said you know he's not very impressive as a person not like not like us chiseled gods 
among men. And so this is the way that they were, they were undermining him. And, and that's why the letter, as we've seen, it has this real adversarial tone. In places it's sarcastic. In, in other places he, it, he is taking on head to head his adversaries, his enemies in Corinth. And, and, and at the same time, it's a kind of a tension because it's also the book in which Paul, more than any other letter he writes, and more than any other New Testament book, probably, it's, it's the book where he bears his soul and his heart. You know, you can really, really see the, the deep affection he has for them and the deep concern and anxiety and fear that he has for these brothers and sisters in Corinth. And through it all, as we said from the beginning, we've given this series the, the, the sort of meta theme of power in weakness. That's been a theme that runs all throughout. And actually, he picks up the same theme in our passage today that you heard read a little earlier on. So in verse 4 of chapter 13, he says, For he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we are also uh, we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by God's power. So this is a theme that's obviously run all throughout, sort of climaxing in chapter twelve, where Paul quotes Jesus' own words uh, back to him. Uh, when Jesus said to him in verse 9 of chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And so that's been a theme that's run all the way through as well. Now today, I want us to focus really quite narrowly, uh, not on the whole of chapter 13, but on the last couple of verses. So I want to focus mainly on, on verses 11 to 13. Uh, you might have a translation that ends with verse 14. In my Christian Standard Bible, it ends in 13. It's just a difference in some of the manuscripts. Some, uh, some translate verse 12 into 12 and 13, and then the last verse is 14. In my translation, it's uh, uh, just 12 is, um, is a, a, a verse in its own right, and then the last verse is chapter 13, uh, verse 13. Gee, that's not, um, that's not confusing at all. Uh, I think I did a really good job of making that extra clear. Anyway, your chapter might finish in verse 14. Mine finishes in verse 13. That's it. All right, so I'm going to look at verse 11 to 13, and we're going to begin with verse 11. I just want us to pick up on the the focus here, the tone of Paul, whereas in chapter 10 up until now, he's been really adversarial, really gone, uh, you know, straight for the throat on these super apostles and on those in Corinth who are unrepentant. Now he's going to change tone dramatically and he's going to leave us with some real optimism. All right, I want us to focus on that. So verse 11 to 13. Let me I'll read it all and then and then we'll 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 focus in. All right, so he says, "Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings." The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So beginning with verse 11, let me reread that for you. This is what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So here you've got these five imperatives, all right? Five commands that in the original language are, I think, almost all just a single word. So they're real rapid fire, right? Rapid fire commands that he wants to leave them with. And he, he draws their attention to the importance of these things by saying, finally, right? Just to, to sum it all up in a, in a sense that, you know, this is how I'm going to tie this letter up. I'm going to give you five imperatives, which I take it to be like five commands or five imperatives for church health. And so I want to look at each one of these. But first, I want us to notice the way that he introduces them, okay? He says, finally, brothers and sisters. And this is actually really important. You'll notice if you read back through the letter from from chapter ten to chapter to ch- chapter thirteen, he hasn't used that language of brothers and sisters because he's been a- addressing super apostles, false teachers, and the unrepentant, and he's not sure what to make of these people. He's not sure if they are indeed brothers and sisters. But here he ends with this really positive, optimistic note. As far as he's concerned. He has the best intentions for them and is thinking the best of them and is anticipating that they will indeed follow through in repentance, take up these imperatives for church health and move forward in gospel fidelity. That's, he's got this optimistic hope. Now, he does f- season that hope with, with some warnings as well. So in verse 5, Of chapter 13 he says test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves or do you you yourselves not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test and so he wants them to test themselves he wants them to think soberly about their relationship with God the, the status of their salvation but he has this, this great hope that they will, in fact, prove themselves to be faithful. So he, he addresses them as such. He addresses them as brothers and sisters. The other important thing I want to see in, in that designation of brother and sister is that before he gets to the commands, right, the law in effect, he wants to remind them that they are recipients of grace. And this is a just a principle that we should be aware of, a kind of a maxim that we should uh, adhere to, which is the fact that, that grace precedes law. Okay, this is not just a New Testament gospel thing. This is an Old Testament and New Testament thing that God's grace always precedes the law because without being empowered by grace, there's no way that we'll ever be able to obey the law. And so before he gives them these laws, these commands, these imperatives to obey, he first wants to remind them of their status before God, that he has graciously empowered them by the Spirit so that they can, in fact, obey these commands. All right, so Let's get into the commands themselves. The first one in verse 11 is to 
rejoice. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Now, here's why this is challenging to hear, right? Once you understand that these are imperatives, that these are commands, the command to rejoice is a tricky one. It's, we can push back a little bit against this because there's no asterisk next to it, rejoice. He doesn't say, finally, rejoice, asterisk, read down the bottom fine print, uh, unless you're going through hard times or unless your spouse is being really annoying or unless you're into the you know, seventh month of lockdown. All right. So he, there is no asterisk. And that is a challenge for us because we want to say, yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree that I should rejoice unless all of these conditions are, are, are in contravention of that command. But there is no asterisk in this passage. We're simply commanded to rejoice. And that's tricky. Remember, Paul gave an example of the, uh, these other Christians, uh, the example he gives to us of Christians rejoicing in spite of their circumstances. Remember in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, he talks about the Macedonians. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, there's the designation, um, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Now listen to this. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What's the point? The point is the Macedonians experienced abundant joy in the midst of very trying circumstances. And here's the thing. The reason that we can do that, the reason, first of all, that we can be commanded to rejoice irrespective of our circumstances, and the reason that we can, in fact, rejoice irrespective of our circumstances, is because true gospel rejoicing, true gospel joy, comes about as a result of the unchanging love of God. Right? The, un, the, the love of God, which is the same yesterday, today, and, and tomorrow, that the unchanging nature of God's favor, his grace, his love, his adoption, means that we can rejoice in all circumstances. Paul said it himself in this letter, going back to chapter 6, verse 10, I think it is, where he says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So that's his first command, to rejoice. The second one is to be mature. And uh, what you're seeing on my face now is, uh, is not, in fact, rejoicing, but, um, but, but embarrassment because I just realized that I had a little uh, page of notes that I have left in the printer. I'll be back in a second. A few moments later. Okay, so the second thing he wants the church in Corinth and, in fact, the church in Caroline Springs to do is to be mature. Other translations have aim for restoration. Uh, one commentator put it like uh, pull yourselves together. And the, the idea here is that he, he wants us to work towards unity. Aiming for restoration, pulling ourselves together, being mature means working towards unity. Now, we saw last week... Here's my, my notes. 
Uh, we saw last week these unity killers that Paul was fearful were present in the church and would be there when he comes on his third visit. Church unity killers of quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, uh, gossip arrogance, disorder, all of those things. He was, he was afraid we're going to be in the church, and so he instructs them, counteract those things by aiming for restoration, by being mature, by pulling yourselves together. There are more important things than, uh, than there are few more important things than church unity. And I think the point here is that unity is something that needs to be worked towards, you need to know this for all of these commands. They are present imperatives, which mean they, they assume ongoing activity. They're not passive things that you can just give assent to. They're, they're things you have to do now and keep on doing. And, and working for maturity, for church unity, requires work. Disunity requires no work, all right? That's what I know after 10 years in, in, in being a, a vicar of a church, right? Church division happens naturally. It's like, uh, how, does your, how does your garden go if you do nothing? Weeds is what happens to your garden if you do nothing. But unity requires work. Uh, and, and, so, um, and so Paul tells them, work for unity. Put in the work now, we, like if this was true then, then how much more is it true now? Because in 2020, and if you're watching this in 2021 or 2040, I'm assuming things are going to be the same, right? Our culture is just, it's like it's spring loaded for disunity. It's spring loaded for, um, for adversarial disagreement. We can blame social media, we can blame the kind of political discourse of the day, whatever, but that's, the, that's just a fact. And so we default to disunity and we need to work hard for unity. How awesome would it be if the church was the shining example to the world around us, a world mired by disunity, if we were the gold standard for unity? That would be a beautiful thing. That could be a beautiful thing. God willing, it will be a beautiful thing if we obey these imperatives. So first of all, he wants us to rejoice. He wants us to become mature. He also wants us to be encouraged. Another way of translating this is, is to comfort one another. Be encouraged comfort one another remember those two things are related off the top of my head you know encourage courage um, you know uh, and then comfort fought from strength right so they're, they're related comfort and encouragement and Paul wants the church to be mutually comforted mutually encouraged and again I think this is a challenge because Particularly at this point, so many of us are feeling so burnt out by this whole COVID thing. We're, f we're finding ourselves so worn down. We feel like, hey, we need to be the ones to be comforted. How am I meant to comfort others when, when I'm the one who needs comforting? How am I meant to encourage others when I so desperately need encouragement? 
And we're going to see by the end that the reason that we can do this is because all of these things have their source not in ourself, in our own capacities, in our own personality, in our own uh, you know, resources, but they actually have their source in God himself. Comfort or encouragement is no different. So you might remember way back in chapter 1, and verse 3 to 7, Paul says a couple of things about comfort. See if you can hear him as he refers to comfort. He does it a couple of times. All right. So verse 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. So the reason we can comfort one another or encourage one another is because that comfort, that encouragement actually comes from God himself supplied to us for the benefit of others. Fourth thing he talks about is he wants the church to be of the same mind. So this is not the same as saying, uh, I want you all to agree on everything. He's not saying, I want you to have the same opinion about everything. I remember this, uh, <laughs> I, I really like the comedian Eddie Izzard, and I remember a bit he did on about how uh, a lot of people in the, in, in the Anglican church don't have arm muscles, and they just stand around, hello, hello, yes, I think that too. Uh, and uh, he says, uh, the vicar gets up and says, uh, <clears throat> yep, the sermon today uh, comes from a magazine I found in a hedge. And his point is that the, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, are kind of known to, for their lack of backbone, right? Their lack of arm muscles. They just kind of agree with each other, and it's just more, he says, it's more, more of a hobby than a religion, <laughs> <laughs> which I find hilarious. And it's funny because, you know, it's kind of true. Uh, historic Anglicanism is nothing of the sorts, nothing of the sort. It is thoroughly reformed. It is robust in its theology. And it, rather than chasing down every little nuanced opinion about anything, it focuses its doctrinal attention on the apostolic faith. That is the faith that all of us should be united in. This is the reason why in the Anglican prayer book and in our services regularly we say the Apostles' Creed because it is the apostolic faith which unites us. See, Paul's not going for uniformity of opinion. He's going for unity of theology. Right? Unity in the most important things, in the first things, in the gospel things. 
And that's what Paul wants for them now. Obviously, he knows that they're being dragged all over the place doctrinally, theologically, by these false teachers. And so he wants to reunite them in the truth of the gospel. Fifth thing he talks about is he he wants them to be at peace. This is a beautiful command that he gives them a beautiful imperative and it flows naturally from the first four if you think about it if you if you focus on those first four you are going to be at peace at peace with one another and at peace with God himself and the promise he gives is that as you work towards peace you will in fact uh, be accompanied by the God of peace himself now again these Imperatives, these present imperatives imply this ongoing action. They require work. And so you have this kind of dynamic that develops, an ongoing, perpetual, self-perpetuating dynamic, whereby it's kind of like um, the dynamic is like if you do these things, the God of peace will, will be with you. And if the God of peace is with you, you will do these things. And that's an ongoing dynamic that feeds into itself. And so he commends to them these imperatives for church health. Now, I just want us to be aware of our proclivity when it comes to understanding these things, right? When we put them out in dot points and we, we, we establish a logical flow and we even have a kind of a neat dynamic in our kind of post-enlightenment, Western, individualistic way of thinking, it can be easy for us to say, okay, now I understand that conceptually, so that's all I need to do. But in fact, obviously, uh, we can't just give theoretical assent to it. We can't just say, yeah, I've, I've accepted that knowledge. We have to actually do it. We have to apply it. We have to act it out. And Paul gives these guys a sort of very practical, hands-on, or you could say lips-on application for these five imperatives. So he says in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. Now, when I first, I have to say, every time I've read that, I've kind of just skipped over it because I thought well that was just a cultural way of doing greeting at the time and it made sense to them but it doesn't really make sense for us unless you live in some particular parts of Europe but uh, you know greeting one another with a kiss not really what we do turns out I did a little digging on this it turns out that actually Paul was the first one that we know of in Greco-Roman history who, who who encouraged a mixed social audience to greet one another with a kiss. Right, so this actually, at the time, was very culturally weird that he would ask them to do this. A mixed audience, right? Remember, the church is made up of all these different people, Greeks, Romans, Jews, different social classes, all, all of these, like this melting pot of people in the church, just as the church should be, by the way. Uh, and he's asking them to greet one another with, with a kiss. And this was just, would have been culturally weird. And yet he does it because he, again, is pushing them towards unity. This is what the uh, scholar William Classen says about 
uh, this kiss in the Anchor Bible Dictionary. He says, Nothing analogous to the kiss is to be found in any Greco-Roman societies, nor indeed at Qumran. Qumran where... Uh, in, in the West Bank of Israel where you had discovered all the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So n- neither in the Greco-Roman world nor in the Jewish world, in effect, do you have this kiss that Paul tells them to, to participate in. He goes on, Greco-Roman society treated the public kiss, both hetero and homosexual, with considerable reticence, except in times of reunion of loved ones after times of separation, or to signal special occasions of acceptance or joy or honour. And he goes on, Paul was the first popular ethical teacher to instruct members of a mixed social group to greet one another with a kiss. Now, what's the point? Why does he think it's worthwhile blowing apart these social expectations? Well, he wants to use something that is symbolic of, 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 of people who have been separated, coming back together in profound unity. He wants to use that symbol that was really reserved only for family members to reinstate and, and reemphasize the fact that that's what the church is. Irrespective of cultural differences, that's what the church is. We are brothers and sisters. And, and this is another thing. In, 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 Ro- in Roman uh, uh, law, it was illegal to refer to someone who, as a brother or sister who wasn't related to you as a brother or sister because that was reserved for families. And so in the, the brother and sister designation and in the kiss, what he's saying is he's kind of rewriting the rules of what what makes for familial relations. He's saying this goes beyond blood. This is something that is brought about by the blood of Jesus. That we are in fact family. And he wants them to reaffirm this fact through this public expression of, of kissing, probably a kiss on each cheek like they do to, in Europe to this day. And that itself probably finds its lineage back to Paul's command here. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe it's time to bring this back. I'm not, I'm not a big public display of affection guy, but maybe this would be good for us. It's a tragedy of the church that somewhere through church history, you can't remember exactly when, but the church said, you know, you've got to stop doing that holy kiss thing between people um, and, and instead you've got to kiss a crucifix or some kind of icon. And so the church then became this, this crucifix kissing uh, culture and 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 then the the so-called secular culture around them kept doing the kissing thing uh, to this day and so it's seen as kind of like this 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 secular culture practice when in fact it was begun for the church and intended for the church so I don't know maybe maybe we should greet each other with a kiss the point is Paul knows as as we do that 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 doing love builds love. That even when you're estranged from someone, as many in the church in Corinth were from one another, doing love builds love. Uh, the Gottman Institute, who, who is like the foremost research institute on marriage, recommends that for every couple, and particularly for those who are, who are experiencing marital difficulties, whenever they reconnect, like after a day at work or whatever, they should share a six-second kiss, 
right? They've, they've boiled it down scientifically, mathematically to, to a six-second kiss. And I'm not saying the holy kiss Paul's talking about was like this. It was, as I said, most likely a couple of pecks on the cheek. But the point is that Gottman Institute knows that doing love builds love. So husbands and wives, that one, take that one for free. Six-second kiss from now on, all right? I don't know. Maybe we should do this. Maybe once we're back post-COVID uh, and past social distancing and everyone's been jabbed with a vaccine, I don't know, maybe we can start getting into this. Um, holy kiss. I want to finish our time now. I know we've been going on a little, but we've had a lot to kind of recap. And this chapter is so beautiful. And these last few verses are so hopeful. I, I want to get to the beautiful grace that begins in verse 13. And just break that down a little bit for us. Okay, so, so verse 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So for some of us who have grown up in church, this has sort of become uh, the thing that happens at the end of a service or, you know, the thing that you do as you're all holding hands and feeling a little bit awkward because you haven't been practicing your holy kisses or whatever. Uh, But don't let this kind of just wash over you because this is one of the most beautiful things that Paul has ever written. This grace is the thing that you would most want for anyone who is important to you in your life, right? If you could have a wish for anyone in your life, this grace would be it. This is the best thing you can wish on someone. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of things on this. First of all, it's notable that Paul doesn't use the kind of established order of the Trinity as he writes this out, right? The order that he normally uses is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, even though he, he's, he's using Trinitarian language here, he's not trying to teach any theology about the Trinity, okay? He's just blessing us with these words. And the reason I think he starts with the Son instead of the Father is because he wants us to view the whole grace through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Okay, so I want us to look at this. Imagine you're looking through a lens which is colored with the filter of grace. All right? I think that's why Paul puts it first. He understands that only by the grace of God can we know God, the love of God or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit for that matter. Only by the grace of God can we know repentance and faith. Only by the grace of God can we be recipients of his love. Only by the grace of God can we have true Christian unity. And so he begins with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then through that lens, we can see clearly the love of God for us. So you have in uh, Romans chapter 5, you have uh, chapter 5 verse 8, you have... But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is viewed through the lens of the death of Jesus. That is the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in 1 John verse 4, 10, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And again, John 3.16, you might know this one. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so it's through the grace of God that we understand the love of God. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated on the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, that we understand the love of God for us, a love that we can never be separated from. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Again, the fellowship that we have with the Spirit and with one another by the Spirit is only possible because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way we say it in our church services during the greeting of peace, which soon will become, no doubt, the greeting of the holy kiss. Uh, the holy kiss of peace. I don't know. what We'll work on the, the language. But I love the way that we say this. We say, um, once we were far off, but in union with Christ, we have been brought near through the shedding of his blood, for he is our peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you. So it's by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can even understand and then receive the love of God and share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And let me say it again, there is nothing better you could wish for the people in your life than to know the grace, the love, and the fellowship of God. And not just to know it, but to experience it day to day. And so with that in mind and having sort of tied up the whole letter of 2 Corinthians together, let me just say that blessing over us. And please do actively receive it. These are not just arbitrary words thrown out into the universe. They are a rich and inspired blessing from God to us. So let me say them over to over you as we finish my friends the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always Amen